Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. I know we looked at the, this section once before, but I want to look at it again this morning to focus on just one particular concern that we need to address, we need to be mindful of. And that is the need for unity in our body. There's a need for unity in the entirety of the body of Messiah. But we need to have unity in and among ourselves here at Beth Ariel in order for the Lord to use us as effectively as he desires to. Now I say unity because this is the chief prayer of our Messiah for the believers. When he celebrated Passover with his disciples for the last time, His prayer was that they would be one even as we, the Father and the Son, are one. That was his principal concern, that the body of Messiah, the followers of him, would be united and they would be one. There is a distinction between uniformity and unity. Uniformity is something that can be imposed, and it usually is imposed from the outside, that necessitates a group of people, or whatever we may be talking about, coming together in focus. When I was a teacher back east, I could dictate uniformity. So, for example, when the students came in, they knew they had to come in at such and such a time. If they didn't, their name would be inscribed in the book of death. That, you know, their name would be inscribed. And if they're inscribed enough, uh, detention, man, you know, what can I tell you? And so, you know, I said, come on, Mr. Dina. Look, I'm sorry, but it also brings me joy to let you know that you have a detention, you know? And you get enough of those, and you begin to realize, I better get there at such and such a time. That is what uniformity is, or that is something that causes uniformity. We can force one another to do whatever those in charge want by two means. We establish rules and regulations that need to be followed. And if they are not followed, then we have threats and punishments that result. And then by such outward effects, we can force a uniformity. But you can never force unity. Unity is different than uniformity. Unity is something that swells up, that springs forth from within. It is a transformation that, or the result of a transformation that happens within a person and in a person's heart. And so while uniformity is the collecting, a collection of individuals doing the same thing, unity is a collection of individuals who desire the same thing. 
They don't just do the same thing. And I don't mean by the same thing we all have to believe exactly the same and dot our I's and cross our T's. But I mean we come together for a common goal out of a united desire to see that goal completed. With my students, they may not have liked my class. I must say, though, most of my students really did. We had loads of fun. But if they didn't, they still had to pass that class. They still had to conform to the requirements of that class. But most of my students found themselves desiring to conform because we created a relationship of mutual respect and love for one another. And as a result, they said, I really want to do this for Mr. D because, well, I know he really cares for me. And he's not just teaching me this stuff to make my life hard. He really is sharing this stuff and making requirements of me that I might grow and become a more mature and responsible individual. But that has to spring from within. And to this day, I hear from my students all the time. I've conducted many marriages of my students, dedicated many of their children, because we were in unity together, not merely in, you know, uniformity. So when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he is utterly concerned, like Messiah is concerned for his body, that there would be unity. A unity that springs from an internal transformation of love for one another and a desire to please one another. A desire to see a common goal achieved. This is what is meant by submitting to one another. It is a willful yielding to the desires of others. And in so willfully yielding to one another, even in things that we may not totally agree upon or like, we can find the Lord bless in marvelous ways. And it doesn't mean that the program that is established goes forward in that direction because there are always changes. No one has a clear view of what God is up to. We are all attempting to determine and desire and to find his will and his will unfolds. The book of Esther is so clear to me in this regard that yes, you know, Mordecai said help will come from another place, but he didn't know what that place was. He just knew that God would help because he made a promise that the Jewish people would never be destroyed. And so he knew that help would come. Some of our people may suffer, but help will come and our people as a people will be preserved. But he didn't know how. When Esther agreed to go before the king, she agreed to put her life on the line. She didn't know if the king would extend the scepter or not, but she was willing to go. And she was desirous that others would be in prayer and fasting for her. We oftentimes don't know the path that we will find ourselves on, but we go forward, and when we look back, we can see God's hand really was working in mysterious ways. So when we look at the book of Philippians, or this chapter, Paul is concerned that the body of believers at Philippi, and by extension we here at Beth Ariel in Los Angeles, would be a congregation that is united. Look at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Messiah, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's his desire, 
that we would be united. Now, in Greek, it's very interesting. There are different class conditional statements that the Greek word translated into English, if, can be translated as. Sometimes a class conditional can be translated if and it will happen. You know, if you believe in the Lord Yeshua, you will be saved. Well, it means when you do believe, you will be saved. It doesn't mean it's possible. It means it's certainly, it's certain that when you believe on him, you will be saved. Now, when Paul writes here, if there is any of this, if there is any of that, the meaning is if there is and there is, then that. So what he's really saying here in verse 1, he says, if you have any encouragement, and you do, from being united in Messiah, if you have any comfort from his love, and you do. In other words, you can translate if here by the word since. Since you have encouragement, since you have love, since you have these things, be united in one mind and in one purpose. So let me just show you what he says here in verse 1. He says, since you are united with Messiah. So here's the point. Unity as opposed to uniformity. Uniformity is something that's imposed from the outside. Unity is something that springs up from a sensitive heart within and inside a person. He says is possible because first and foremost, we are already united with the Messiah of Israel. So we are one with him. Therefore, we should be able to be one with one another. Now, this idea of unity and this idea of union with Messiah is a mystery that Paul reveals to us in his writings. This is something that has not been revealed by the prophets, but is now being made known by Paul in a way that this has never been known before. Moses knew the Lord, but this sense of being in the Lord was not something that is spoken of about Moses. David certainly was a man after God's own heart, but you never read the expression, David was in the Lord. But here we find Paul telling us that we are in, in union with Messiah. In fact, that's his most common prepositional phrase in all of his letters. We are in Messiah. In Greek, we are in Christ. That phrase, in, denotes a unique experience that has only begun with the coming of Messiah of Israel. That's why Yeshua said that the the Spirit of God is with you and will be in you. Notice the future tense. He will be in you. Something that had not yet occurred before and only has occurred since the coming of Messiah, the fulfillment of his redemptive program and the giving of the gift of of the Holy Spirit, which was given on the day of Shavuot, recorded in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And since he dwells in us, we are in union with Messiah. And because of the in-working power of the Spirit of God within us, which results in our union with Messiah, we also are in union with one another. Now, some of us may not like the ones that we're in union with, you know, but we are in union with one another. And being in union with one another as a result of being in union with Messiah means that we can be in unity with one another. That's what Paul is saying. Since you're in union with Messiah, you certainly can be in union with one another. Now, he says a second thing. Not only because we're in union with, with one another, but look, since there is 
the manifestation of the comforting experience of love for one another. Love is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is just not a feeling of joy with another, although it may involve that. What Paul is talking about is the fruit of the Spirit that comes as a result of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That enables us now to be caring for another. I say caring. I understand love here is that sacrificial giving of ourselves to another. But that sounds so abstract and distant, doesn't it? It's certainly true. There's sacrifice involved, etc. But the point that Paul is making is there ought to be this uh, presence of love in which we really care for one another. We're really concerned for one another. Where we really take interest in one another's lives. Where we really attempt in one way or another to do something about the needs that one may have or the burdens one may be bearing. So Paul says we are to bear one another's burdens. And so he says because there is the manifestation of love among you, because wherever the Spirit of God is, the fruit of the Spirit must be present, because the Spirit of God cannot exist without his own fruit presence being present. So he says, since there is love in your midst, and in the Philippian body, there certainly was. They sent to Paul gifts. They sent to Paul Epaphroditus. They sent to Paul encouraging news. They sent him gifts on more than one occasion. He knows that these people love him and they must love one another. They may not always show that love for one another. That love may not always be as deep and as caring as it ought to be. But there is love in their midst. And because there is such love, you really can be in union with one another. So he says you can have unity that swells up from within because you're united with Messiah. There can be Union that swells up from within because you really have the capacity and the reality of love in your midst. The fruit of the Spirit has been seen. It is evident. And one such fruit is love. And therefore, allow that love to permeate and to impact each other. He says a third thing. He says, not only because you're in union with Messiah, not only because there is the manifestation of love, but look at this. He says, because there is fellowship with the Spirit. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, Paul speaks about his partnership with the believers at Philippi. It's the same word. It's the word koinonia. He could have, it could have been translated because of our fellowship. And here, the translators chose the word fellowship. They could have said partnership. But the idea is there is a connecting link with the very Spirit of God in our midst. Now, when he talks about the connecting link, the connection with the Spirit of God, he's not talking about the manifestation necessarily of gifts or empowerment or miracles and things like that. He's talking about the quality of God in their midst. He's saying the Spirit of God who is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who is the Spirit of God, which means he's the Spirit of godliness, is in your midst. He dwells within you. And therefore, he can spring forth and flow out that which is necessary for unity to be experienced in in the body. Messiah had said back in John 7 or 8 on Sukkot, 
If any man is thirsty, let him come unto drink, and out of his bellies shall flow rivers of living water. And John then uh, states, And this he spoke of the Spirit, which was not yet given, because Messiah was not yet glorified. So when Paul says there is the presence of the Spirit of God that you are in partnership with, in fellowship with, and Messiah said that those are, who are in such partnership and fellowship with the Spirit will have springs of living water. That's a reference to the life of God. Springs of living water rushing out from your innermost being. That's why unity comes from an internal transformation. The outflowing of the Spirit of God that has flowed into the individual by the grace of God and the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God and the indwelling presence of Messiah himself. Isn't this kind of cool to think about? You know, it really is. I mean, Paul says, so we can have real unity, not just uniformity. By virtue of the fact we're united with Messiah, there's love in our midst. We are in fellowship with the Spirit of God. And then he says, and as a result of this, there is tenderness and compassion. You have exhibited that tenderness and compassion, continue exhibiting it toward one another, unity will be the result. Unity is the goal. The means to that goal is the indwelling presence of God and his spirit that is given full reign to flow freely within and out from so that our congregation, our body, is a manifestation of the spirit of God in our midst. Now, what Paul goes on to say, in verse 2, he then has another encouraging word, challenging word, an admonition or an exhortation. He says, and and in addition to all of that, he then says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now, Paul had a great deal of joy. This book, he writes, uses the word rejoice or joy over 20 times. He found great joy in his circumstances, as we have seen. He found great joy in the restraints and the chains and the imprisonment he was experiencing because the good news was advancing throughout the entire Praetorian Guard, and it even permeated the house of Caesar himself, the household of Caesar. So despite his present restraint, he rejoiced that the good news, was rejoicing that the good news flowed out and impacted the lives of many people. He tells us in chapter 1, despite the criticisms he was experiencing, some, he says, were proclaiming Messiah so as to make his life more miserable than what it already was imprisoned in Rome. And he says, but nevertheless, I rejoice that Messiah is proclaimed. Rather than focus on his chains or the criticism, he focused on the advancement of the good news and the proclamation of Messiah to the world. And then he told us in chapter 1 that despite his crisis, 
life and death crisis. He said his life was now held in the balance. And he says, whether I live or die, if I live, I live to the glory of God. If I die, it is gain. He knew that something could occur. Nero could force his hand and take his life. Yet he says he rejoices. Because if such was to happen, Messiah would be glorified. If he remains, he'll be glorified. If I remain, Paul says, he'll be glorified. If I die, he'll be glorified. And so he found joy in the midst of such things. But despite that, he says, you, the believers at Philippi, perhaps we could even say we here in the 21st century, can make Paul's joy all the more complete. Not that it's incomplete. (laughs) Now he's in the very presence of God, right? But Paul is saying, and as an added incentive, do it for me. Work toward unity in the way that I've just described so that my joy would be brought to completion. It is full and rich, but you can make it richer and fuller by simply determining in your heart and devoting yourself to being an, a facet for unity in the body of believers is what Paul is saying. So the goal is unity. The means is the work of God in the inner life of an individual. And the mechanism for unity, he tells us as well. Take a look at this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That, he tells us, is what causes disunity. Where there is a desire for our own particular whims, there will be a manifestation of pride, conceit, vainglory. Glory that is vanity. Glory that is lost. Glory that is simply eaten up and destroyed. It's a vain glory, not a substantive glory that will last forever. It's very different. If you look at the end of chapter 2, we're told that everyone will proclaim Yeshua as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a glory that can be sustained throughout all of eternity. But he's talking here of a glory that loses its steam, loses its presence. It's a vain glory. It's not a real glory. It's sort of an imaginative glory. We think that it brings honor to ourselves and a sense of prestige and loftiness. But Paul says that kind of a glory will dissipate and will be lost. The kind of glory that can be sustained and that can work toward creating unity, he tells us, is that which is done in humility. Look at verse 3. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So the key to creating unity is for there to be a genuine humility. Now, humility is not thinking less of yourself than you ought to think. It really is thinking rightly about yourself as you ought to think. It doesn't mean to deprecate yourself. It means to be honest about who you really are. 
There are some very good things about all of us, and there are some very bad things about all of us as well. Humility recognizes that reality. I think I told you a story years ago happened when I was speaking at a church when I was uh, serving in a, in, a, in a body where I was speaking out and raising support as a uh, missionary among the Jewish people. And I remember once I went into a church and I, and I spoke there, and there was a woman who had given like a special music, you know, and sang. And so after the service was over, as it was traditional in this church, the pastor and some of the elders and, you know, would stand at the door and shake everyone's hand as they left. And so they asked me to come back to greet everyone. So on the way out, the woman who had sang a special song had come by and some of the greeters that were there, one of them shook her hand and said, you know, you really sang wonderfully today. And she said, it wasn't me, it was, it was God. And he said, no, I know God used you and has given you a wonderful gift. And it was just wonderful to hear, hear you sing. And she said, no, no, it wasn't me. It was all glory to God, it was God. And he said, well, if it was God, it really wasn't that good. You know, it really wasn't that good. You know. So, you know, it's amazing these things stick in your mind. And, you know, maybe the guy was from Jersey, so he didn't, you know, didn't mind. But doesn't that tell it? How often has that happened to you? You know, you thank somebody, it's not me, it's God, you know. Well, if it was God, it would be a whole lot better, believe me, you know. I mean, like you do a painting, it's wonderful. Hey, that's a great painting. It's God. No, no, listen, if it was God, six days, look what he did. You know, imagine what he could do in 30 seconds. I'm telling you, you know, it's good. It's not that good. That's not humility. Humility would have been, hey, listen, thank you. I'm glad that God ministered to you through my song. You know, it isn't making believe you didn't do anything. You did do something. You practiced some, I'm sure. You know, you've been singing for a while. They didn't just get up there and, you know, then we'd all say, what just happened? Hey, listen, it wasn't me. It was God. No, that was definitely you. (laughs) Definitely you. The point is, true humility is honest. As he said earlier, at the end of chapter 1, that we are to walk worthy, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. When he means worthy, he means with integrity. May your life be consistent with what you say. We're not always consistent. We wish we were more consistent, but that's the goal. So that as Mitch Treisman, I know I mentioned his name, used to say years ago when we used to work together in Jewish ministry, your lip must be coordinate with your life. Your beliefs must be seen in your behavior. Your doctrine should be seen in what you do. Very easy to remember, right? B, B, belief, behavior. You know, D, D, doctrine, doing. LL, life and lip. He's from Philly. Could have been from Jersey. It's just over the border, you know. But the point is, humility is not denying how God uses one. But it's recognizing, I want to give glory to God in prayer and praise. And so when Paul talks about humility, he's saying, you don't look for your own interests, but you look for the, to meet the interests and needs of others. And so just in conclusion, he gives us the example of Messiah. And let me just say three quick things about the example of Messiah. 
The first thing he tells us is that, um, and, and if you look at verse 5, he says, your attitude, this is how you develop humility, think like Messiah thought. You know what's interesting about thinking about this? I can't think of too many events in the good news accounts, in the Gospels, where people serve Messiah. I mean, I think of the woman who, you know, washed her, his feet with her hair. It's a service to him. You know, I think of those that tended to his body, and uh, Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus, taking his body down and preparing it for uh, burial. That was a service rendered to him. But there aren't too many places where you read of him being served. You know of these wealthy women that provided for his needs, clothing, housing, food, and so on. But Messiah tells us, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. So the first thing I notice about Messiah in, verse, in chapter 2 is that he was a servant. Look at verse 7. Though he was God in all of what it means to be God, he was not less than God, he was God, is what Paul means in verse 6. Nevertheless, he was willing to serve. He was very nature a servant. By the way, the very same word for very nature God is the very same word that's used for very nature servant. Just as he was really God, he was really a servant. And he came to serve. So now if we're going to have unity, we have to have the same mind as Messiah, which means we have to be willing to serve. We have to be willing to give of ourselves to another. That's what Messiah did. That's what humility demands, necessitates. You have to serve if you're going to be humbled and humble before others. And you have to be willing to place others' interests above your own. The second thing he says about Messiah is that not only was he a servant, but he sacrificed. Look at verse 8. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about this. The Lord of glory went from heaven to earth. He went from being God to taking upon himself, in addition to his divinity, human nature. He went from being life in all of its meaning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life to experience death. And so he went from death to glory and resurrection. But he was willing to go low in order to be raised high. Isn't that what Peter says too? Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and in due time he will raise you up. The way up is down. Yeshua said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone, sacrifice. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Somebody said there cannot be any blessing without any bleeding. There cannot be any gaining without any giving. And so if we have as a congregation are going to be in union, we've got to be considerate for one another. And we have to be desirous to sacrifice for one another. That means it has to cost us something. And it's been said many times, this is a real challenge for the wealthy. Because generally they can give in their abundance that doesn't really cost them much. I'm not speaking about any individual per se. I'm just referring to what I've read and what I've heard. And just yesterday, we were down by Rodeo Drive. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You You don't have to say too much more than that. But it's like 
every other car, Mercedes, Mercedes, Porsche, Mercedes, Porsche, 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 Ferrari, you know, I mean, yikes. You know, after a while, I said, hey, it's just, you know, it's just metal and rubber. <laughs> but it looks nice. <laughs> yeah, it looks really nice. And I'm not deprecating anybody who wants that. Listen, I'm not saying anything about that. But, you know, you just got to roll from one end of the street to the other, you know. And I pray that some of these people who have much are as generous as they are. And maybe many of them are. I don't know. But I can tell you this. Yeshua did say it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. So wealth, money, power, all of that. Dangerous stuff. And it's one of the reasons James says, you know, don't desire to be teachers. Have the higher judgment, stronger, sterner judgment. Don't be too mindful to be careful about what you accumulate. Because we're held accountable for everything God grants us and God has granted whatever we have to us. We have to remember what Yeshua said. Don't be like that man that stored all of his stuff. And then the Lord says, you know, today your soul will be held accountable to me. We have to be willing to sacrifice to the point where it might hurt. Many in our world do that, don't they? I mean, you think of the believers in China, North Korea, and in other parts of the world where indeed just to be a believer is a sacrifice. For us here in the United States and here in Los Angeles, and I know not all of us have it as well as some others, we need to think about what it means to sacrifice for one another. It might just mean for us, if we can just come a little earlier to start at 11. You know, <laughs> just a thought, just a thought. Stay a little later to help clean up, you know. But we need to be servants if we're going to be humble. And if we're not going to be humble, we won't have unity, is what Paul tells us. So if we're going to be humble, it means we have to be servants to one another. We have to sacrifice for one another. And lastly, as he says at the end of the chapter... We need to be seeking the glory of God and not our own. Because as every tongue will confess that Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it is true. Either we do that now or we will do it one day. We will do it in praise and adoration or we will do it in a state of condemnation and alienation. But we will all do it. And maybe those that do it under such circumstances are forced into uniformity. But you and I can be willingly participants in a unity in which the Lord is glorified. Now, one final thing about unity. We've talked about uh, the, the motive for it. Paul mentions all those things in the first few verses. Talked about the mechanism for it, it's humility. We talked about the example of it, Messiah, who was a servant who sacrificed and glorified God. Now, let me just say one last thing about unity. And why I think it was the uppermost prayer of our Messiah. Because unity, now think about this and just think, think, think with me a minute. Unity is the very character of God. Every week we recite Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. The Lord is not love, although he is. (laughs) The Lord is just, we don't say that. The Lord is fair, you know, maybe that's, may or may not be true, The Lord is gracious. No, we say the Lord is unity. He is one. And so what is it? What is unity? 
God himself manifests what unity is to us. When you think of the nature of God, and of course here it's always got to be very careful because when we're talking about the nature of God, we can very easily slip into the abyss of heresy. But I will take some careful steps in the hope that I don't do that. But when you look at God, he's one God, yet he manifests himself. He exists eternally. He doesn't just manifest himself. There's my heretical thought. But he exists eternally as three unique individual persons. Now, I, I, you know, I can't go too much further than that. But each one of the persons, Father, Son, Spirit of God, is submissive to one another. Each one of them are, I'll use this word, and I have to think about whether it's theologically accurate, is subordinate to the other. What I mean is this. The Father, though the Father sends the Son. I mean, over and over he says, I've been sent by the Father. And so it isn't the Son who sends the Father. It is the Father who sends the Son. Scripture is very clear on that. Further, the Scripture tells us that both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God's purpose, theologians talk about, the self-effacing of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Spirit of God does not draw attention to himself, but to the Son. The Spirit of God has come to glorify the Son. And that's why when we pray, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's coordination. That's what I'm just trying to illustrate. There's a sense of, I don't like the word subordination, that's too heretical, but it, it, I mean to suggest that they're in coordination with one another and they're mutually submissive to one another. The Spirit of God says, you know what, I really would like to be glorified. Can't I be the one glorified for, you know? No, there's no, no issues like that. There's no debate about it. There's a mutual satisfying of each person in the respective role that they are described as having. And the thing that enables it is the reality, the existence of love. Because love exists in God himself with no one else. That's why scripture says God is love. And the only way love can exist is if there's some kind of interrelationship. Because you can't love in isolation. Love necessitates a lover as much as one loving And what happens in the triunity of God is the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, and there is a mutual loving of the persons one to the other. So when when we say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we're meant to focus on that dynamic that exists within God. So now, why does God create He creates so that the creation might experience love. That's why he created. He didn't create human beings because he needed to be loved. God loves within himself. He created so that created beings could experience this marvelous thing called love. 
And the only way unity can exist is where that love of God is present. And where that love of God is present, there will be humility as there is within the Godhead himself as they mutually coordinate their respective roles in humility one to the other. So the son will say, not my will, but thy will be done. The father will say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit will come so as to empower others to glorify the son. There is this humility thing, this loving thing, this coordinated thing. And that's what we need to exhibit and can exhibit because the spirit resides in us through us and among us. So as we move, and whether we moved or not, but in light of the fact that there is a major transition about to hit us in terms of location, may it also ignite a transition to love like we've not experienced before. And the home groups, life groups, I think are critical to it. Because that's where we will come into one another's lives and be challenged to love, to be challenged in humility, to be challenged to serve, to be challenged to sacrifice. And as a consequence, truly and magnificently bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. And as I'm praying, the ushers can come forward so you don't have to waste time in the worship team as well. But Father, we thank you for your word to us. This is where the reality of faith really comes. It's important to know for sure. It's important for us to understand your word, no doubt. But it is equally important that we walk worthy of the calling, that we conduct our lives in a worthy manner. But we can't understand what worthiness means unless we learn some of the things about which we've learned this morning, that you've instructed us with. So we pray, Father, that we might be clay to be molded in your hands, to become the kind of united congregation to become the one Echad type congregation that you would have us to be. We desire, Father, that your spirit would have control over our lives. We pray, Father, that you might help our wills to be in conformity with your own. Help us, Lord, to pursue humility, to pursue it in all of its facets. Help us, Lord, to become servants. Help us, Father, to make sacrifices. And help us, Lord, to thereby bring glory to you, for you alone are worthy. We are thankful, Father, this morning for the gifts that you are to receive from us. We thank you for the provisions you've provided us with that we can give to you in this manner. Our prayer, Lord, is that, number one, we would oversee these funds with diligence, knowing that they are gifts.
to you. And we pray, Father, that these funds would be used in the furtherance and the promoting and the disseminating of the good news through our respective missionaries, our workers here at Beth Ariel as well. So, Lord, thank you for those who are able to give. Thank you, Father, for these gifts as well. We praise you for them. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.